0: What's up, everyone? Sarah here. We have a Awesome episode today. Before we get into it, just a quick shout out to the lovely sponsor GlassesUSA.com. If you have been watching my videos, some of the podcast clips, y'all, I have been rocking some fire frames and they are from GlassesUSA.com. I'm a big fan. They have so many cool different styles, over 6,000 styles to be exact of high quality prescription lenses and sunglasses that guess what? They don't break the bank and you can buy them from the comfort of your own home. All of the glasses that I got have blue light technology because, hey, we're all glued to our computer screens more than ever right now. These MR8 lenses block up to 95% of harmful blue light. So why is this important? When looking at a screen, especially after dark, blue light waves can strain your eyes and keep you awake when you're trying to sleep. We can't mess up that circadian rhythm. Gotta keep it in check. If you wanna see how you look in the glasses before you buy, you can try their virtual try-on on glassesusa.com. They have, again, so many different styles and colors. I was bold this time, y'all. Instead of sticking with the black and brown, I went with green. A green pair of glasses and also a blue. Let me know what you think about my uh, somewhat adventurous frames. So a complete pair of eyeglasses and sunglasses start at only $30. Free basic prescription lenses are included with every single frame. So what are you waiting for? So if you want to check it out, go to glassesusa.com and use the coupon code all caps Sarah70 and Sarah65. Sarah70 provides a 70% off all lens upgrades, including prescriptions, blue light on all pairs, including premium. And then the Sarah 65 provides 65% off the frame prices on all non-premium frames on the site. So check it out, glassesusa.com. Enjoy this episode. to That Creative Life. Hi, my name is Sarah Dietschy and I am your host. I talk with artists, YouTubers, CEOs, and everyone in between. I hope this podcast helps you live your best creative life. Enjoy. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of That Creative Life. I'm so excited to have Rebecca Minkoff here on the show. Um, Your reputation precedes yourself, but I'll let you do kind of a little uh, 30-second bio. And then I have so many questions because even though me, myself, I'm not a uh, super fashion person. I admire the business. I admire the industry. Um, so I'm excited, excited to chat.
1: Yeah, I'll give you the two-minute two version of my life. It's funny. Yeah. I, I just turned in my book manuscript, and I have relived my history so often. I love it. Uh, so I, moved, I fell in love with sewing and design at the age of eight. Uh, I wanted this dress, my mother said no, and she said, I'll teach you how to sew instead. So that got my creative juices flowing once I got over my resentment. Filtered through to high school, we can talk about the bullying or not, but was bullied a lot and took took a lot of comfort in the fact that I could create my own garments um, to make them fit me. And um, when it came time, when all my, my friends were going to college, I just felt like I had to get to the city and I had to start. So through a friend of a friend, Got an internship in the city with a designer, worked there for about six months before I demanded to be hired, worked there for another two and a half years, and then in 2001, struck out on my own. Not not my own planning, not my own, uh, wasn't what I thought was going to happen, um, but uh, an actress wore a shirt of mine on Jay Leno shortly after 9-11, said my name. I made this I Love New York shirt all cut up and bedazzled. That was a thing, trust me. Um, yeah, and I
0: love the story of how you would co- go to Canal Street and make sure all the vendors have it. My office is like right off of Canal, um, off Broadway. So I'm very familiar with that area.
1: Yes. So my, my preferred vendor was on the corner of Green and Canal. Love it. Uh, he gave me the best deals. Um, and then did clothing, paid the bills as a stylist because my clothing company was not a success. And then did a bag in 2005 that took off in a way that my... Apparel business never had the rest is definitely not history, but had, you know, had swift sort of, you know, this moment that I wish you could have every year of just like everyone wanting this bag, it's selling out rinse, wash, repeat. Um, And now we have a lifestyle brand with 10 categories We're we were sold in over 900 stores. I have no idea what that number is today. Maybe take 70% off of that. Um, And here we are.
0: Amazing. I, I love that because, you know, in preparation for this, I listened to a lot of interviews of you and as someone who does interviews as well, it's funny how often you have to regurgitate kind of the same thing, but you encapsulated your story perfectly. So I'm excited to kind of get into just talking about the, the world we're in. How has that changed with fashion? You mentioned uh, retail stores, how that was the thing. And when it comes to a designer brand, you got to be in Nordstrom, you got to be in those department stores, but oh my gosh, how things have changed in the past five years, but also 2020. Yeah. A lot has changed. How are you feeling? (laughs) I feel like that question is almost like an attack. Like how dare you ask how I'm feeling right now, but how how are you?
1: (laughs) Right now I'm really good. Um, I have chosen starting, I guess a month after the pandemic started to see the silver linings of how this was great. And that is not meant to offend or show lack of empathy for anyone who's lost someone or who's been sick or who has lost their income. There are huge systemic issues within our world right now that are affecting tons. I think for us as a company, we faced going out of business in the very first week. 70% of our business evaporated. And when I say evaporated, it was orders canceled, do not ship us, we will not pay for these. Um, and we had everything ready. It was like the, the middle of the month was when we start shipping our wholesale partners. So wow. right away, my brother and I had to say, okay, we owe it to ourselves. We put 15 years into this company and to our, you know, investor who went out on a limb to go outside of his comfort zone and, and invest in this company to give this everything we got. So what does that mean? It means we're a direct to consumer company I'm the biggest influencer uh unpaid influencer of the company, and um how do we sort of reframe and refocus everyone's attention on that? We had due layoffs and furloughs, which was horrific and then it was about getting back to business and staying alive because not only because of it's been fifteen years and all that, but like we employ a lot of people like we don't want to contribute to you know what happens when when things crash so we I'm really proud of us as a team. You know, we've never been tighter, more communicative, more. You know, business is up, and I'm, I'm so grateful because I'm like, who needs a bag right now, right? Mm. But she's supporting the brand because I think we're giving her uh, a dose of reality, a dose of refreshing content and authenticity that I know is an overused word but that she's like, oh, wait, Rebecca's in the bathroom on the floor taking her conference calls and doing <laughs> home school. Oh, cool. You know, like there's there's a realness to what we're all experiencing that I that I very much, you know, put out there.
0: Right. What month was that? What week when everything hit the fan? March 13th. <laughs> Which coincided with the market just plummeting. So I'm sure that was just, I mean, I, I think that's when everything really hit the fan because people realized, Oh, this is way bigger than we thought. Uh oh. Okay. And you mentioned, you know, when you're, when you're selling so much product to wholesalers and then, Oh, they're not buying. I mean that, I can't imagine what that was like. I mean, what was your first step? How did you get, where do you go?
1: So we took a look at the business and we said, okay, what do we realistically think we can do on our e-commerce size? And that's the size of the business. And let's project those numbers, looking at last year's numbers, looking at worst case scenarios. So minimally, can we meet last year's numbers? And what is the size of team and payroll that can support that? And mm-hmm. who, who doesn't relate to that business? So sadly, anyone on our wholesale team or logistics, any, anyone that was related to the business of wholesale, unfortunately, you know, we had to furlough them or let them go. And we all took, uh, in some cases, well, my brother and I took the highest pay cuts, but then we had to do, you know, pay cuts so that we could right size the team and the salaries with the business because that was our only source of income. And then we said, okay, that, that layer is done. That was the worst part. Now, look, let's look at our marketing. We were sending three emails a week pre-pandemic. Okay, let's send seven and see what happens. And then it was like, okay, how do we get new eyeballs to the site? um, in this type of scenario, because the usual things might not be working. You don't have all these stores sort of acting as your, as your, uh, window dressings. Um, and then we just had to get creative and then it was content, right? It was like, well, we can't shoot anything. Well, I can shoot it all. Cool. Let's go. So I became the subject of the emails, the top of funnel videos, not be- from an egotistical perspective. No, I love
0: but- that. Well, cause usually in your in your sphere, it would be more egotistical to be like, oh, I can't be that because our Rebecca Minkoff, that has to be so like not of the people. It's the brand, right? So I I think it's the opposite when you say, okay, let's, you know, you look around, you see what everyone else is doing. You say, oh, I can do that too. I mean, I think that's also where the future is headed. You know, if you're not top of the top, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, it's like, what do you offer outside of luxury? And I think it's relatability and it's who you market to. Like it's the millennial woman, right? And you are one. So that, that's smart to use you.
1: <laughs> yeah. and And she responded. I think we always go with what she's responding to. So she responded to the top of funnel video. She responded to me doing silly Things online or my Instagram lives, my happy hours, you know, my COVID specific podcast. So I think she was like, I'm on my phone all day long. Give me, give me more. Mm-hmm.
0: What is your podcast called for people who want to check it out?
1: Yes. It's called super women with Rebecca Minkoff pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. It was really focused around telling incredible women's stories from the viewpoint of challenges and vulnerabilities and how they've overcome it. And I think so many women can feel alone. Mm-hmm. And this was a way that like, even Katie Couric, has challenges and even, you know, these luminaries that we think are perfect um, have their faults. Um, And then we did some COVID specific episodes around marketing, health, just so that you could get quick tips now that weren't Mm -hmm. necessarily about the woman and her journey.
0: It's it's unique in a day and age where everyone has their audiences and they're all very niche and it's the thousand true fans and people can so easily make a job off of that. But to have a brand that is so big and has been in department stores, and obviously this journey began what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago?
1: 15.
0: Yeah, 15 years ago. For people out there that see that and they're inspired by that, it. To me, I feel like it almost seems kind of impossible in the 2020 world, but what would you say to people out there who might have a streetwear brand or might have a brand that they want to go beyond their audience? What is their first step? Because I feel like so many people want that, but it's a huge challenge. So I
1: think that it's 100% possible to establish a brand, but I think that we've been doing it for 15 years and everyone who wants to have a brand forgets how long it takes. Right. So, if you even look at Supreme, right, which is the hottest streetwear label, cult, all that, you know, <laughs> I feel like only in the last few years has it become this outside of, of the Supreme loyalty. Outside of
0: skateboarding, right? yeah.
1: So, I mean, and they've been around for probably, what, 20, more than 20 years. So I think you have to like go, okay, I can order my Amazon Prime and it comes tomorrow and I can order my Uber, but my career and my brand are going to mm-hmm. take 10, 15 years to really get into society and, and get to the middle of the country and, and mm, get the-
0: That's Because yeah. we want um, it quick.
1: What about the idea of having a profitable business that allows you to live your life? Like, what does the faint, you know, like, I think we get convinced by these sexy images on covers of these entrepreneurs who have these big billion dollar valuations. They've taken hundreds of millions of VC dollars. Mm. And they're owned by these VCs. They yeah. don't really retain their company. And I'm like, do we all need to have that? I don't know. I would love to have a life where I can go and pick up my kids from school and not be like distracted because I'm worried about a deadline. And mm-hmm. I can make myself lunch and not be like, oh, I didn't have time to eat or oh, I'm not sleeping. Like, I'm, I, I think we all need to sort of reframe, like, what do we want out of our lives? And if, and if, if our company pays for that lifestyle, then that's not a bad thing.
0: That's such a good point such, and you, when you described your business, you used a a word that not a lot of people like to use and you said a lifestyle business. And that's usually where it doesn't, you know, you're not worrying about every single quarter, raising more money. You're not being worried about, you know, uh, the Carlisle group owning half of your company like Supreme. So you can be valued at that, you know, billions of dollars. Um, And I think that's so important. You don't have to be that unicorn because that brings so many things and at the end of the day a lot of times you're not a real business where's the profit
1: right can we talk about (laughs) that because we learned that the hard way we (laughs) several years ago you know for let's say 12 of the 15 years we've been in business everyone said it's about growth don't worry about profitability grow at all costs Mm -hmm. then we went to see what our company was worth and the investors peeked under the hood. They're like, oh, no, no, we need you to be profitable. And when you've built up your entire company and, and, you know, didn't make the margin you should make or, you know, made all these decisions to grow at all costs, turning that Titanic around, it's taken us three years, hmm. you know, and it's, it's not easy. So why don't you just grow and make money? Yeah. Like, wow. That's a great thing.
0: So was that the perspective, the first 10 years or so, to just grow, 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 we'll worry about profit later?
1: Yeah, even more, probably 12 years of that. You know, wow. everyone was looking at the Kate Spades, the Michael Kors, you know, and if you look at how much money, uh, you know, was pumped into those companies, I think Michael Kors had over $40 million put in over time before it even grew, right? Wow. So how much cash it took, and- I'm sure their investors are happy and it paid them back many times, but um, when you're, when you're priming yourself for something and it switches, it's, it's a, quite a reality adjustment.
0: I mean, I can imagine how did your team change? It
1: wasn't about the team changing. It was about, okay, if we have to make money, how do we do it? And it can't mean we can raise prices.
0: Right. So you, you had know? enough runway that you could keep the same people, but then you just adjust the business plans around it.
1: Yes. You had to adjust the business, how you were doing it, who you were selling to, how much you had to get tr- super granular right. on things. Um, and frankly, say no to a lot of business. We took off over $20 million of business that just wasn't profitable, right? At the end of the day, when you looked at how much money you made off that 20 million and what that was doing as a dilution point to your margin and your brand, it wasn't worth it. We said, okay, it's not about growing, growing, growing. Let's remove this unprofitable part and really show an organic demand for our customer.
0: What, what was that? What did that primarily consist of?
1: That primarily consisted of off price. So, you know, a lot of these big brands, how they, how they grow so big is they have extraordinarily large outlet presences. Um, And so we don't have an outlet, but we do have partners that we work with that people shop at all the time that are discounted, discounted items. And so rather than feed that machine and also dilute your brand, we just said, Mm -hmm. we're going to cut that number down by 20 million and focus on where we can make more money.
0: Hmm. How do you find the balance in pricing with the, oh, our products last more than six months, right? But you want to be accessible, but you want to be, you know, you don't want to be something that's comparable to something that you, you know, you would buy it like a Target I, growing up in the suburbs of Texas, I was like, hey, I need some new shirts. Let's go to Target. Right. Which nothing wrong with that. I still rep the basic tees all the time. But there's a, when you build a brand, you, you want to stand out in a way, but that also costs. The materials are different. So many things are different. So how do you balance that? Building quality products, setting it at the right price. Was it a smart move to I mean, obviously cause you did it, but um, with the outlet you you mentioned diluting your brand. What do you mean by that? Like how do you balance that pricing and, and the quality of goods?
1: So I think it's a lot of trial and error. You know, my when I launched, my prices were extraordinarily affordable. My bags were four ninety five and five ninety five. And that was considered like a steal that was the contemporary pricing structure it was bought here kuba me a couple of other brands that sadly aren't aren't around anymore even mark jacobs was that that sort of mark by mark was that price point then the recession hit in 2008 2009 and we were told by many of our department store partners if you have a five or a four in front of any of your bags we will no longer carry the, the brand the customer um, the customer not the person has changed, but her bank account has and her, and her job opportunities and her ability to get raises and promotions has changed. So we lowered the bags, the prices. And then we really saw a huge hockey stick growth um, when we said, okay, what is an opening price point for our customer? She's done with fast fashion. And then who's, who comes next? She can't then go to luxury. Right. What's that in between? And so we really found that the sweet spot was 195. Um, to max 325, um, and how do we just stay in there? So we know our guardrails are those two, sort of 195 to 325, and we know the, the bulk of that works at 195 to 225, and that's where she is, and we celebrate her. We say, you know what, this is a great value, it is a luxury item, made at it the same factories that luxury is made, um, and you're gonna get it for a price we know you can pay rent, you can go out to dinner and you can have your handbag and so that we really try and build everything we do into the into that pricing structure and we and we try things sometimes we try and price up it doesn't work we know the next year we come out with a similar bag for less um and and we just see what works
0: how does your manufacturing change when you you did that initial price change
1: well, that was fun. We said, let's take the Wrigley's model and just make no money and just go for scale. So <laughs> let's, let's go for bubble gum here and, um, you know, cross our fingers that when we reach scale, we can then negotiate margins. So we really just said, if we start ordering three, 500 and a thousand of the same style, we've got to get a break from the factory. And that's, that is what ended up happening, but it was definitely a moment where you just go like this.
0: Interesting. So you you hope that the numbers can be so big that the manufacturing lowers the prices for you and you can take that profit. Correct. Huh. Interesting. Coming from like the content creator side, I see a lot of people turning their merch into, I mean, I kind of roll my eyes everywhere pe- Every time YouTubers are like, it's not merch, it's streetwear. I'm like, no, it's merch. But people are getting more creative. And it's really cool to see. And it's really cool to see people going beyond the teespring and slapping a logo on a shirt and getting into cut and sew. And of course, you have to, your number's of course, have to be, you know, much higher for that stuff. How do you see this new market of a lot of people are repping, you know, the YouTuber they watch or the podcast that they listen to. And that has kind of become synonymous with their fashion routine because they want to rep the brand. And I imagine that that also has to do with how how you guys have have shifted your business too. Um you know, making your face and Rebecca more part of the conversation on social media.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people want to belong to a tribe and they want it to be very clear whose tribe they're part of. And Mm -hmm. so whether it is the YouTubers merch or the podcasters merch, you know what? I received a sweatshirt from Spotify and the network I'm on is owned by Spotify. And it said, keep listening. And then I saw it was made by Champion that's something I would never wear before, but it's like my airport. Like I have my Jumper sweatshirts and then my Spotify Champion sweatshirt, and I'm like, I love I am, it. I am so cool. I'm wearing streetwear. Um, so I think it's like I think it's seeped into the zeitgeist that you're showing which tribe you belong to, and that's what matters to people right now. I'm not just I got something for twenty dollars and I'm going to wear it. And it's going to Disintegrate in in my laundry tomorrow. Right,
0: yeah, that's. I mean, that's so true. What do you think about the uh, the not trend because I guess they're real businesses, but the Stitch Fixes, the Nolies of the wor- world. I I tried Stitch Fix for a little bit, but it was a little bit too like suburban mom. But then I tried Nolie, which is by Urban Outfitters um, or their parent company, and it was honestly really cool. And they had amazing pieces, but then COVID hit. And I was like, it's probably not the best idea to be like sharing clothes with people. Um, for people who aren't aware, these are subscription clothing companies where, you know, you can have five pieces for 80, 90 bucks a month, and then you send back and keep what you want. Where do you see the, the future of that? What are your thoughts on that? You know,
1: I'm torn because I was doing subscription for my kids and it just got to be too stressful. Like, hmm uh why didn't you like what was in it check on the box all the all things that you know and then it was like oh
0: it in- is involved
1: if you don't put it back in the box by tomorrow we're gonna charge you and I was just like I gotta stop the subscription boxes it's too like I just want to be able to go to the store or go to the one destination I know my kids like and they become extraordinarily picky and just buy that so for mm-hmm. me subscription is nothing I've ever enjoyed but I do see that if you're not sure what to wear or how to style it together and you can take advantage of a stylist, let's say on stitch fix who gets to know you and your style. That's a great thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I, I think for beauty it'll work, but for clothing, I just don't know. Cause you don't need that much new stuff anymore, you know?
0: Right. Right. And it is hard, I guess, as a consumer too, balance that every day. Okay. Am I going to buy another five, $25 H&M t-shirts and then they're going to disappear in a year? Or am I going to go for something more quality? And I, I feel like I'm a good example of the, the new consumer who, if I just have an IG story ad that pops up and something looks cute, but also comfy, I'm like, bye, let's go for it. <laughs> so I feel like maybe it's it's almost like an effort that you have to put forward as a consumer to really think about what you're buying and to also think long-term because Hey, it's probably going to be more pricey, but maybe it lasts longer. Yeah. I guess there's no question associated with that, but how do you deal with your own closet? Do you think about that?
1: I'm thinking about it very heavily right now and I'll, and I'll probably overshare. We have been like, we've moved seven times since March. Um, just because, just because, and I've learned that I need a lot, like, you know, my closet was Not big by New York City standards, but it was a place that I had a lot of clothing. Yeah, And I've been living with a tenth of that. And I'm like, wow, I really actually don't need all this stuff. And I guess to spur the purge of it, I had moths that I couldn't get rid of. So since I've been out of my house, I had um, a woman come in and like treat everything and pack it up. And now it's in boxes. And I'm like, no, I really don't need this stuff. I should (laughs) probably donate it. So I think that we don't need as much as we think we did because we aren't going, I'm not going out like I was. I'm not getting dressed for the office like I was. Some days I'm in my workout gear all day. You know, I'm now investing in like Spanx workout clothes and I never (laughs) thought that's something I would get excited about, you know, and then wearing them all day. So I think that it's changed and people obviously, like, I still love the excitement about ordering something and, and receiving it, but I think I'm just more thoughtful about it.
0: One of uh, my favorite things about your story is how your your mom said, no, I'm not going to buy you that handbag or that purse, but I'm going to teach you how to sew. And that was the beginning of your journey. And, oh, I feel like that is so huge. I mean, one of the most defining things I feel like of my childhood is I was really into gaming and I saved up all my babysitting money to buy a PSP. It was $350, $361 tax. And I remember being so excited going to GameStop, making that purchase. But then when I got there, I realized, oh my gosh, I don't have enough money to buy a game. And so, of course, when you're a kid, you're like, mom, please. Like, can you just buy me a game? I, I saved up all this money for, for the PSP. And she was like, no, no. But hey, a neighbor just moved in um, with kids. We should stop by and see if they need a babysitter and i remember being so defeated but so many of those experiences like that have have defined my life because you associate hey if you want something you got to you got to work for it and i feel like that is a theme in in so many people's lives or their childhood if they have any amount of success so you as now a mom of 3 I imagine you can buy your kids whatever they want. And I'm sure when you have children, you want to give them whatever they want. So how do you navigate that now?
1: I say no all the time. And I have to remind myself, it literally, no comes out of my mouth more, more than you'd care to hear. And every time I do it, I'm like, but I'm damaging them, but I'm damaging them. Because I remember how shitty it felt when I was said no to. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, wait, just remember and I'll always say, no, I'm not going to buy that for you, but you can earn it. And here's how okay. you can earn it. And so, you know, we obviously buy them things if they've achieved whatever, certain mm-hmm. certain benchmarks in school or gotten a good report card, all that. But I think for the most part, I am, you know, I'm always saying no. And I think it's important because I think they have to know that they have to work for what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to a podcast and this mother was like, my kid will get a cell phone and a car when they've created a job that creates income. Wow. And so it forced her son to start researching stuff and creating a business at the age of 16 Love and that. now he's making money. And i and so I said that to my eight-year-old, I said, if you want a phone, uh, you can create a business and you can make money and that's how you're going to get your phone. So he's, the wheels are turning. He hasn't accepted it yet, but we're, we're working on it.
0: That is awesome. What are some of his ideas? Does he go straight to, okay, Fortnite gamer. <laughs> or I, like, what is that world like for, for a kid his age?
1: Well, so for a minute, he and my daughter were like, let's be YouTubers. And so we, my husband and I, my husband's a director. So he gave them kind of a quick tutorial on how to make a video. And then for four hours, we don't know what they did, but they made the dumbest video that was so <laughs> cute. And then they were like, oh, that was too much work. We don't want to be a YouTuber. So, um, you know, he's a musician. He's an incredible drummer. So you know, I'm, I don't want to push him, but I'm hoping he goes in that, in that vein.
0: I love that. That's so cool. Well, Hey, if you guys ever, I don't know if you're in New York now, but if you ever come back and they, they want to come to a YouTuber studio and see the behind the scenes, hit me up.
1: Okay. They would love that. They <laughs> yeah. would love.
0: It. Man, that's, I feel like that's so huge. I mean,
1: my first sewing machine, I bought babysitting money, Barbie. That's- I had to have the 90210 limited edition Barbie set, babysitting money, you know, like everything was, you know, my mom was like, I'll pay for your class that'll teach you it, and I'll pay yeah. for the materials, but that's yep. it. Um, and so I had the supplies to make stuff, but I had to do that stuff. And I and I, I, think more people could take that approach with their kids and, and grow people that know how to do shit.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so huge. If For the people who are watching the video episode, let's see if I can get these in the shot. So these, these are Jeffrey Campbell sneakers that – I wanted so bad in high school. And the moment I got a scholarship for engineering in college, my mom surprised me with these. And it was it was so it's like, oh my gosh, I wanted these sneakers so, so much. And it's cool also, like six years after seven, how old am I? Twenty 20- I don't even want to do that math, but they they're still they're, they still exist. And this was like my first pair of shoes that was beyond a hundred bucks. Do you
1: stockpile, like when you have a favorite item, do you buy it in multiples?
0: I do with t-shirts. Okay. So I'm a very like t-shirt wearer type person. When I find one, I just buy all of them in multiple different colors. Yeah. yeah 100%. And then when it comes to, you know, I'm a huge, I love sneakers. And so this has been, I don't wear them all the time because they literally have spikes at the end of them, (laughs) but it's so fun also to have things that associate with, hey, this was like an accomplishment. I dropped out, but hey, I got that scholarship. Shout out to Jeannie, my mom. Uh, But let's talk about DTC, direct to consumer. I mean, a lot of people throw that term out often, um, but shifting away from retailers as a fashion brand, I'm sure you guys are relying on a lot of user-generated content, a lot of posts that you personally are making, social media, social media, social media. So what is, in 2020, y'all's content calendar looking like? How do you balance that in between you and, you know, do you have a small team that helps you produce things? Um, Who are your models? What's that game plan like?
1: Okay, so from March until about a month ago, the only model option was me or a woman on my design team uh, in my office because we have been or had been in Florida and um, she was in New York. So uh, we would every week sort of determine, okay, also with the lovely delays of FedEx and everything due to Corona and delays, Every week, we don't know for sure what's going to be available until the following week. So it is week by week. It is not like we're forecasting the calendar for three months out. So we have a call with um, about five of the stakeholders. What's in the warehouse? What do we want to get behind that's here? And how do we tell a cohesive story? And then it's like, who's on first? I'm like, I'll shoot these two things. Jody, you shoot these, um, and then that takes care or, or we'll use like a product description page image, like an e-commerce image that we've shot. Um, and then that's what gets slated into the email. I write the emails, the copy and all that because I was sick of just hating the way my email sounded. I was like, who? This doesn't sound like anything I want to have in my inbox, so I'll, I'll write it. So I write the emails, um, and then my social media manager, it's just her and I manage the social. So we sort of go, okay, every day we want to speak to an email because we've seen lifts in sales when the email matches the same message in social and on stories, and then we know that the algorithm, at least for my brand, prefers two posts a day, not three, not one. Um, We're not having a good week this week. I don't know what happened, but um, we really try and build it so that we're talking about what's in the email and then talking about something that I stand behind or I'm excited about. And we know now that she likes me. She likes product close-ups. Occasionally she likes UGC. um, And that's kind of it. And so that's what we're trying to give her. And then we're peppering in my IG lives. Um, We're peppering in reels, which has been really fun to do. We're on TikTok now, and I need a lot of help with that. Because I don't if know. If anyone
0: is listening, I can help Rebecca me. with TikToks. Please email TikTok her. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but it's interesting because what I thought she would like on TikTok is actually working on Instagram. And what I thought she would like on Instagram is what is very small performing on TikTok. So interesting. it's not what I thought it was.
0: What What is that?
1: On TikTok, the, the most viewed video, which again, it's really sad. It's like, Abysmal numbers, but she likes the how to and the video explaining there's no dancing, there's no quick edits or cuts. It's just literally like, this is the bag, this is how it's useful, these are the colors, like tutorials. Whereas Mm -hmm. on Instagram in my Reels, she really likes those quick edits, those fun, you know, videos.
0: Right. So interesting. What you're explaining is it's refreshing to hear someone who has, you know, seemingly had everything figured out for the past fifteen years, but you know, you're still, oh, you're writing your own emails. And as someone who for the past five years has tried to go just beyond me and scaling with the team. And I talk on this podcast all the time about my woes with delegation, because I'm naturally a messy creative person. So explaining things to people is just my hell. I mean, it's just the worst, but I learned, I've grown. But at the same time, it's, it's so cool to hear that, man, you never really grow out of creating for yourself. I, I feel like if you have a creative brand or you're trying to sell a product and the channels to sell that product are these, these creative platforms where people respond to you and things captured in a unique way, you're never really just going to like set it and forget it and kick your feet back and just, you know, ah, it's figured out. Most definitely
1: not. And I think that that's another disillusion that people need to sort of do away with is like, I even had it. I was like, oh, when I get to be X in size, like this company, life will just become
0: so easy. That's what I was playing in my head too. no,
1: (laughs) no, it's not. I have yet to meet an entrepreneur and I, and I know a lot of them that feels that way, you know, some of the biggest companies around and they are stressed the F out.
0: Yep. Yep. It never ends, especially when you are the boss and you only answer to yourself. Right. So that means there is no one else to blame. No. And that's it's sometimes You know, getting through your own dreams. Exactly. Exactly.
1: I also want to dispel the idea that it's a bad thing, right? Right. The stress, the the problems, it's just part of it. Like, a child doesn't know that something smells bad until an adult says that's stinky or that's gross, right? Yep. Prior to that, so it's like, we have to also do away with the idea that this journey, if it's hard, it's bad, or if you're stressed out, it's bad. It's just part of it. And we just have to accept it and sort of rewire our brains mm-hmm. and like, oh, this is, this is actually the ingredients to this mm-hmm. cake.
0: Oh, that's huge. And you have to learn how to love the journey. I know that sounds cheesy, but like, cause it never, you never arrive. Especially for people who want to, I mean, it's weird that kids want to be YouTubers now because when I was in college doing an engineer major, it was, it just seemed like YouTuber wasn't a thing, but, oh, start posting videos and, oh, there's some traction. And usually the people who rise to the top are the people where it wasn't a job in the beginning. And so I feel like it's, it might be better for those people because they learn, okay, it is the journey. This isn't even a job, but it's what I love. It's my passion. And so I, I think people have a unique journey now who see the job, Yeah, but people are already there and it's already a thing. And they almost have an uphill battle because they see the, the ending and it's always being obsessed with the outcome. But
1: right. then if you
0: never get there, then you're not going to be happy.
1: No, you won't be happy. And I think that you can't do it for the wrong reasons, you right. know? You really have to do it because you love it. It is your passion Um, and it can't be anything else. It can't be because you want to be rich or you want to be a celebrity or you want people to like you. It really has to be like, I love this no matter what. There was an actress that I interviewed um, named Jess Garcia and she was like, I was on a TV show not being paid enough and waiting tables, but I loved being an actor on this show so bad that it didn't matter that I was doing that or that I couldn't pay my bills, and it was just like that. You have to go into it because it's hard enough, and you won't make it if it's just about the money or the fame.
0: Mm-hmm. You almost have to have something that you just hate so much that anything else will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I wanted to jump off a cliff when I was studying electrical engineering. Oh. It was just three years of hell. Well, almost, I applaud you? Yeah, <laughs> you almost have to give. I, I feel like when it goes back to kids too, you almost have to give them just a terrible alternative to to seek out other things. Like, okay, that's fine, but maybe you're going to be doing dishes for an hour every night if you don't figure out how to get a job or, or something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh,
0: yeah, when it comes to, you know, I think we kind of lightly touched on, and it's so overplayed, so I'm sorry. You're allowed to roll your eyes at this, but hustle culture. It has just done a complete 180 where it was it was everything hustle, hustle, hustle. But then now the pendulum has swung. So in the opposite direction now where we demonize that and kind of like what you were alluding to, we almost give this like, okay, you could be a YouTuber and everything will be good. And you'll only work seven hours a day. Don't, don't do work for free. Don't do all these things. And so often I feel like I give people the playbook, but when it's not what they want, it's kind of like, oh no, like you know, I hustle culture. I'm not about that life. Where do you, where do you find that balance with your own team too? Cause of course it's different when you own a business first working for someone. Um, but sometimes it's kind of like, well, if you don't do your job, you got to fix it. Now this is me like having a team now and, and dealing with these things, but I get nervous to be like, oh, I don't want them to think that I'm mean, or I don't want them to think that I'm this like crazy, uh, you know, person with crazy expectations. But at the end of the day, you got to do your job. There's no question there, but thoughts, hustle culture.
1: <laughs> so many thoughts. So in my youth, as I was coming up through whatever my work experience, the term burnout didn't exist, Right. right? You just did your job. And if you wanted to get ahead and you wanted the raise and you wanted the promotion, you worked your ass off. You also, at least in my case, I love what I did. So I didn't feel burnt out because my right. work- I mean, that's huge. Me, my work gave me that energy, right? So clearly if you're in the wrong job working 12 hour days, I could totally see how you're burnt out. But then why are you in that job, right? If, if you chose to be in that arena. So I think there has been a slow and systemic. And again, I don't know where it starts of like this culture of like babies, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do the work, but I want the money and I want the promotion. And I want you to be nice to me at all times. Yeah, and I yep, yep. don't know where that started, but I, you know, I used to be the like office, like, Oh, if you're sad, come, come to me, talk, let's work it out. How can I help you? And then, you know, we had a consultant come in and he was like, just stop. Hmm. You are paying, you are giving money that is from, earned from your company to these people. They either have to do a job better than you, faster than you, uh, you know, show innovation Hmm. or else they don't, they don't get to work at your company because- And it sounds so simple, but like if someone's not contributing to the growth of your company and its success and its financial success, then they don't get to be there. And so mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you have to be mean. You don't need to be a tyrant, but it does mean that you have expectations of you're here to contribute, not to detract, not to distract, and not to fucking whine. Um, and you get paid for that. It's not like a, we're not a charity.
0: Mm-hmm you know yeah. yeah i saw i saw this tweet the other day that someone was like imagine being a company and caring about profit more than the people who work there imagine and i'm like well okay okay like you should care about your people but like since the dawn of time people make companies So that everyone can make money and you can have a salary. And I'm just like, man, this is getting a little weird. Just a little.
1: It's getting a little weird. And you should care about your people. And the two ideas are not independent. You
0: can't
1: pay your people, expect them to do your job and have fun and have a great culture. Like they're not mutually separated. But I think we need to, unless we want to become socialists, we need to stop... You know, America, for the most part, is a capitalist country. So unless – if you want socialism, then build a socialist company and have everyone, you know, do what they want and get all paid the same. Yeah,
0: Yeah, you build it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you're going to complain about it, you build that utopia. Uh Uh-oh. We're getting in dangerous territory, Rebecca, talking about that socialism is bad. That is a – that's that's dangerous. That's cancel culture right there. (laughs) Exactly. Well, okay, something that I don't get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people about because I, I mean – I'm a tech youtuber i'm an industry with a lot of guys which is it's an awesome community i have to say um but a lot of times you have these people that then get elevated i think the uh theranos theranos what was her name elizabeth holmes yeah yeah she's such a good example of this where the media craves that oh a woman steve jobs slap her on every single magazine but then at the end of the day okay her business isn't successful though. And it's this weird blend of, and on a, on a podcast I listened to, you're making fun of the, the word found her instead of founder. And I was like, I was listening to it. And I was like, yes. And CEO. <laughs> yes, she, And I'm like, okay, what is the balance there in embracing women in this space? But also looking at how do we find women who are just out there doing it and we're not putting them on magazines because they look cool and they raised a ton of money, but it's so cool to talk to you about this because you are a woman who has built a business that makes money and maybe it isn't super sexy that you're not raising $250 million a year, but why don't I see you on every single magazine, Rebecca?
1: That is a really good question. <laughs> you can change that immediately. <laughs> um, okay, I'll try and break it down as much as I know. Um, I think that there is a fine line between putting a woman on a cover because someone says, oh, we need a woman on a cover this month because we gotta keep it equal, right? Or it's the same with race. We gotta have our diversity quotas met, right? Um, not because someone genuinely is like, wow, the world improves with representation. So I think it starts from like whoever is in charge actually feeling that it's better genuinely for everybody and the company when you have 50% men and women or 50% you know, BIPOC representation. Mm-hmm. And then you can make your honest, authentic, genuine choices about who should be on the cover and do your
0: homework. Cause I think when people do that, that shallow thing where you're saying, Oh, we have to meet a quota. She looks good. Okay. Put it there. It's like, well, if you want to actually be a part of that change, you got to do your homework. It might be a little harder to find it, Yeah. but let's do our homework.
1: A hundred percent. And and it's just, it's about looking, right? I mean, the people that decide who's on the cover, I don't know how many of them are men. Um, and I don't know when they're presented with a pool of women, how many, you know, it comes down to a relationship with a publicist and that public, you know, a friend of mine got on the cover and it was literally at the, uh, a friend of mine was a publicist and said, oh, why don't you do her on the cover to the editor? And then it was like, great idea. We'll do that. So that's how that stuff can happen. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. an emblem of this hard work that you know most often the people that might not make it on the cover are like sweating and not even paying attention and like working their butts
0: off. I mean that's a that's a big point cuz just like Hollywood or just like a lot of these other things it is kind of run on nepotism. It's who knows who. And I mean there's a crazy statistic where like I'm going to butcher this guy so don't take this as bible but you know like 60% of the Oscar winners last year were all somehow related to each other or something like that. So It is a good point to where it's almost like the people who have a ton of time to go full on with all of that PR, that might be 60% of what they're doing. So they actually aren't heads down, you know, working like crazy. And cause that's what I'm trying to work on to just get my head above the water with editing and and content. So I can do more of that stuff, but it's hard.
1: Yeah. It's a full-time job, you know, pre -pre pandemic when we were in, in, in like promotion of me mode, you know, every time I would see a, I say a true designer, like a one that's behind the scenes, that's in her design team in the room, which I spent many years just being that, I'd be like, wow, you're just everywhere. You're on panels all the time and magazines. I was like, it's my full-time job right now. That is yeah. all I'm doing. I'm, I'm meeting with my team, you know, two hours once a week. And i am be like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, got to go on TV. So I think <laughs> that it, it is a job if you want that.
0: Yeah. What do you, total random, but what do you think about panels? Do you like panels?
1: So here's what drives me crazy about panels, and I will say yes to, to being on most of them. So I say this as someone that is a total hypocrite. I am tired of the panel culture of we are the all-knowing ones, and right. you, the public, will listen to our minds, and and you will glean our mm-hmm. success from listening. You're
0: welcome, people.
1: So- I say it because I'm speaking out of both asses. I I don't know that that's the most effective way to learn, but I'll also say yes, because I view Mm -hmm. it as being out there and getting my name out there and and hopefully I make a difference and I help people. I think what we've done at the Female Founder Collective is we go, what's your pain point with our community? Great. Here's a class. Here is an unsexy class that's like a woman who you admire, but she's teaching you something. She's Mm -hmm. literally like how to improve marketing. or how to build. I like
0: that. Cause I'll, I'll be on panels and I'll talk for two minutes and the, the level of cohesion between what people are saying is just so not there. And I'm almost like, can we make it a thing where there's just no more panels and just a lot of keynotes? Yes. I'm a fan of that.
1: I'm a fan of a keynote. I love it.
0: Yeah. Well, in the last few minutes, tell us what you're excited about. You mentioned that that collective. You mentioned you were writing a book. Hello, it sounds like you got a lot of stuff in the pipeline. What What are you pumped about? Tell us about those things.
1: Okay. In the immediate future, we just launched fragrance, uh, okay. which I'm really proud of. Uh, so that's out there in the world. It's sulfate free, phthalate free, vegan, cruelty free, recyclable, all that fun stuff. Um, but also smells amazing. I just submitted my first draft of the manuscript my book, which is going to come out next summer. Awesome. Um, it's the two year anniversary of my podcast, which I am Love excited it. about and, um, the collective, uh, it's a founder community of 9,000 founders. It is an education resource as well. It's a seal that you can knowingly put on the back of whatever. And, um, it doesn't have that. I'm just giving a bad example. Um, <laughs> and know that you're supporting a woman so that as as a consumer you can be conscious about your choices and know that you're giving money to women
0: mm-hmm. that's awesome and of course your brand the bags the accessories the clothes yeah. it's Fashion week. yes oh yes amazing amazing um so many things to check out so everyone uh make sure to check out the show notes below if anything has sparked your interest and hey when your book comes out and if it's back to normal in nyc maybe let's do a round two uh in the office i feel like that'd be a lot of fun and we can promote the crap out of your book that would be awesome yeah thank awesome you for thank you. Me. of course this was such a good conversation uh everyone make sure to check out rebecca on all the socials and until next time thank you for listening make sure you subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, wherever you listen to that creative life until next time it's saradici thank you for listening